Today's episode of Speak LA, the podcast, is sponsored by Actors Connection. Before we begin, one of the things we most often hear from our listeners is how hard it is to find an agent. If this is something that you are struggling with, go to ispeakla.com and download our free agent guide today. There's absolutely no shame in not having an agent, but we really want to help you get one. So go to ispeakla.com and grab your free agent guide now. Hey, Cam. Hey, Ben. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. We have been looking forward to this episode, huh? John Patrick Shanley. Yeah, I I am. I, I really, words cannot describe <laughs> how excited yeah. I am about this episode yeah. today. Um, he's my favorite playwright. I remember yeah. working on a scene from The Dreamer Examines His Pillow when I was 19. Uh-huh. Uh, working on a monologue from there as well. Uh, working with my students on a lot of a lot of his works, Standing in the Deep Blue Sea, The Red Coat. Yeah. Oh, I just, I, I just, I love him. <laughs> I know, I love him too. He, he's, he's really, he's really incredible, and just such an honor to have to have somebody on who has been recognized for such amazing awards. I mean, he's, as you know, won a Pulitzer for drama for Doubt, won the Tony for Doubt, and uh, won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for Moonstruck. I mean, it's it's just, uh, his, his body of work is incredible. And um, he is one of our greats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is one of our greats. You know, I love that term. One of our greats. He is. He is um, one of our greats. Yeah. Yeah. But really hey, is. while we while we wait, um, tell me about you. What have you been doing? Well, um, I've been. I, I was recently thinking about one of the most romantic spots. I think that yeah, are in that, LA. In LA, yes. Besides okay. Paris, of course, which okay. is always <laughs> yeah. a romantic spot. <laughs> I just have to put that romantic and magical. So romantic and magical in LA. Um, yeah. Have you ever been to the Urban Lights at LACMA? There's these. No. It's just, What's it's, that? Just, it's just this really amazing sculpture that is um, on Wil- Wilshire, and it's all these lights, and you can walk mm. through them, and there's always people taking photos there. I love that place so much. I think it is one of the most romantic places in LA. When you go at night, all the lights are are lit up, and it just oh, wow. it just feels like I don't know. You know. You know that. that when you're like, I'm in my own movie right now. Like I'm the star yeah. of my own movie. <laughs> That's what it feels like. And it's, it's so funny because um, I always like to bring dates there to that mm. little area. Yeah. Smart. I know. Well, yeah. it's really funny because not one of them really gets the level of romance there. So if I meet somebody who really understands that romantic spot, I will know. know. I'll know he's someone special. <laughs> That's the test. That's that the is test. the test. <laughs> Where were you born and raised? Bronx, New York. What was the day job that you had when you were first coming up? Uh, I've had so many day jobs that, I mean, the first one was I was on Desert Patrol at Orchard Beach. Uh, that's where they strap a tank orange drink to your back. 
and put you in a big straw hat and send you out onto the sand dunes yelling, soda. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) How old were you when you sold your first play or screenplay? Uh, Yeah, you don't sell plays. But I mean, oh. I was a play. I was a playwright, uh, and had my first play produced when I was still at NYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I had my first play produced professionally, also while I was still at NYU. Uh, and uh, I've had a play produced on average about once a year, once every two years for the next ten years. Wow! Wow! In what city have you spent most of your adult life? New York City. And how old were you the first time you visited Los Angeles? I was 35. Wow. Have you ever lived in LA? I lived at the Chateau Marmont once for a year. While and I if was you doing had to, yeah, while you were doing versus the volcano. Got it. Cool. If you had to sum up Los Angeles in one word, what would that word be? Uh, lay back. Yeah, I know that. I know that's not the truth, but it's a truth. Yeah, especially compared to New York. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. We're so excited yeah. to have you on the show. This is such a treat Thank for you. us. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'd love to just start with kind Happy of. To be. Oh well, we're ecstatic. Um, I would love to start with just a very straightforward question is, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? And kind of what were the beginnings of your writing career like? So where did you start? Uh, I, I, was a, I was a writer before I knew I was a writer. So I started writing and other people started saying that I was a writer. Uh, I was slow to uh, come to that because it wasn't a discernible occupation you could uh, share with your buddies in the Bronx. It just seemed like <laughs> saying you were a spaceman. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, but I was writing poems and little bits of stories and stuff uh, on a fairly regular basis by the time I was 10. Uh, I won my first writing award when I was about 12. Wow. Uh, and uh, I have been a writer from that time till this time. So when did you kind of decide this is what I want to do as a career? When did, when did that shift happen? Uh, I, um, I started off the, in the main as a poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed that when I would go to a party, the hostess would light up and say, you're a poet. There's another poet at the party. I have to introduce you. And she would take me through all of these laughing, wonderful people to the most miserable son of a bitch <laughs> at the party. And I would take a look at that person and say, I'm not going to be a poet. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> uh, and then I wrote my first play when I was about, well, I guess about 22 uh, and uh, it was immediately put on. It was at NYU in a 300-seat house. Like, literally, it went into rehearsal maybe three weeks after I wrote it. Uh, and so many people, students, 
uh, you know, wanted to be in it, wanted to build the scenery, wanted to hand out flyers. And I was like, this is so much better than being a poet. (laughs) (laughs) I never looked back. Never looked back. Wow. That's a great, that's great story. Um, Was your family encouraging or discouraging of your um, path? I don't think that my parents really knew what to make of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm the youngest of five children. I'm the only one who ever went to college. Uh, I didn't know anybody uh, in the arts in my entire world. And I, I knew many, many people. I lived in a big, thriving neighborhood. There was not one person in the arts. So uh, I, had nothing, I had nothing to compare it to. Uh, I really, when I saw a play when I was 13 called Sereno de Bergerac, and I saw that the main character was this person who was deformed and who was the toughest guy in the room and who was a poet. Well, I felt like I was all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I sort of grappled onto that and thought, if Sarah Noe can walk into a room and say he's a poet, so can I. <laughs> and that was, you know, very similar to saying I'm an artist. Uh, and in the Bronx, that's like putting a sign around your neck that says, kick me. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, uh, it helped me, you know. I think we all need a certain amount of scaffolding around an unprotected idea of self, that Mm -hmm. if you don't have a lot of support uh, in your family, in your community, or just plain role model, that the great thing about books and plays and movies is you get to look into other lives and go like, well, this guy did it, so maybe I can do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love what you're saying because it is true that the the artistic path and the artistic journey, there really isn't a manual for it. No one can hand you this manual and say, okay, you know, you want to be an artist? You want to be a writer? You want to be an actor? Like, here you go. Here are the steps that you need to take. And I think one of those steps really is about the confidence of saying, I can do this. Like, why not me? you know, and it's interesting hearing you um, talk about that, like have, have other people kind of say that to you first, like, look, you're really amazing at this. And then seeing that progression in your own life. Do you think that there's, um, in terms of, of an artist, just thinking about that, do you think there are certain things that an artist needs uh, to possess that are crucial to success? Well, it's funny you know, uh, years ago, I was part of a, a membership organization called uh, New Dramatists, and it was a, a and it's still in existence, is a, a organization for supporting new playwrights. And you got uh, you submitted plays, and if they took you, you were given rehearsal space, casting director copying costs for your scripts and all of that for seven years. Wow. Uh, and uh, I, so I had been in it, I was in it for, at that point, maybe like five years. And things were bad. You know, I was broke. I was qualified for food stamps. I didn't get them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I had nothing, you know. And uh, one day, 
these uh, people who gave foundation, that gave money to New Dramatists amongst other organizations, they were sort of taking a tour and somebody said, well, there's one of the playwrights there. Uh, and I, there I was sitting in my lifeless clothes with my very bad haircut, <laughs> looking like really depressed. Uh, and they said, like you just did, what do you need? Wow. You know? And I said, I only need one thing. I need for people to believe in me. Uh, I knew there was wow. no amount of money that was going to change anything. No break, breakthrough that was going to change anything. I just needed people to believe in me. And I think that's really true uh, for all artists. Um, some artists are amazingly self-sustaining. Uh, and they don't need that kind of support, but get it anyway, I don't believe them. I believe that secretly, the fact that there are people who uh, are enriched by their work is the thing that makes them keep going. Wow, I love that. Is, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Now, what do you do if you don't have that yet? When you're... You know, because I like what you're talking about. And these are the, these are the, this is, this is the way, right, of, of the artist. You have these very low moments, you have these very high moments, and all these moments in between. <laughs> and we're sort of connecting all the dots. So what, what have you done for yourself in those moments where you've needed that belief system and you, you haven't quite found it outside of you? What did you do um, to reach inside yourself? You keep going. Keep going. You know, uh, you know, I can tell you right now, like if, if you don't have an artistic bone in your body and you get up every day and you say to everybody who will listen, I'm an artist, it will become true. Uh, it's a declaration, you know, of intent. You don't have to successfully make art. You have to successfully declare to yourself and to the community, I'm an artist. You have to clear a space. It's like, stand back. I'm going to need an eight-foot perimeter. I'm going to be making art here. And then you can take a charcoal stick and scroll out a, a, a poem on the wall You and say, that's my statement, whatever. You can dip your hand in your own blood and make a handprint on the wall and say, <laughs> I'm an artist. And you're an artist. You're an artist. There's no one can stop you, but you. And right. that's just the truth. Right. And I like how what you're saying can live side by side. There can be the declaration side next to the doubt that occurs as oh, well. Oh, you're going to have tons of doubt. The thing, you got to just keep going. You got to yeah. keep doing stuff. You got to keep making art. Picasso said that. He said that, that you know, uh, uh, people will uh, extol your virtues. They will hate what you do. Keep going. Just keep. I just keep making art. Oh, actually, no, pardon. It's Andy Warhol who said that. He said, just keep making art, no matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they They say you're a genius or a bum. Just keep making art. They'll never catch up with you. You'll always be out of them. That's perfect advice. I love it. Um, I, I would I would love to ask you about um, the casting process. We have a lot of actors that listen to our podcast, and um, 
I'm sure they'd just love to hear from you if there's any, I'm sure you've, well, first of all, I guess I'd ask how involved are you typically in the casting process? And um, is there is there anything you've seen actors do or not do that, that really works or doesn't work in their favor? Uh, I'm intimately involved in all casting for all my projects. Um, uh, it's, I, do, I work with one theater where sometimes I'll give them a one act play uh, and uh, I'll just come and see it. I had nothing to do with it. And that's really fun for me. That may be more fun than anything else because there's no work involved. And if it's mm -hmm. good, I go like, I did that. And if it's bad, I'm like, what did they, what did they do? I wasn't here. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of, there's many different ways that I cast. Certainly in the early days, I looked around me for people who I thought were, who I was drawn to as actors. And I would write pieces for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they inspired me, you know. Uh, things I would I would write things for somebody that I would never write if I didn't wasn't looking at that person. They brought it out of me. They are one of my faces, in effect, uh, though I might not have known that. And that's an interesting way to work. More recently, uh, I write about characters, people that I know uh, or imagine and have nobody in mind whatsoever. And I wait for the actor to come in and show me who this character is. Mm. Uh, take this character away from me. Because mm. uh, for a director, for a writer, these characters, these scripts, they are a burden. And it's up to the actor to come in and say, let me carry this part of it for you. I mm. can do this for you. And if they really bring it to life, they wrest it from you and now it's theirs and you have less of a burden and you're freer to do your part of the work. Have you ever had an actor come in the room and do something totally different and, and consequently, have you had to change the writing or like, have you had somebody change your mind about what the character is? Yes, certainly. Uh, it, you know, first of all, if it's an actor I don't know, and, I, and I'm excited by what they're doing, uh, they're, gonna, they're bringing something that I never thought of to it. Uh, and I'm saying, yeah, okay. You know, uh, when I hire an actor, it's like I just did this movie, Wild Mountain Time. I remember the first day I was shooting, uh, we did like a first take of Jamie Dornan. Uh, and after the take, I said, uh, good, we'll be going again. And uh, Jamie, who's very good at muttering, uh, <laughs> muttered, uh, I thought it was complete shite. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, um, no, 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 just you know, <laughs> relax, but we're going we're, we're gonna to go again. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's, I'm here to do whatever you want. And I said, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. I hired you. I follow you. I come second. You, mm -hmm. I, I watch you. And if you need help, I will help you to make you more you. Because mm -hmm. that's what I want. I want you. Uh, and uh, I can see that really landed with him. 
Uh, and I think that he felt incredibly accepted and free from that point on. Wow. I, I think that's going to land with a lot of actors hearing this because I think so many of us mm -hmm. as actors do feel like we're there to just, you know, do, do sort of the vision of the writers and producers and directors. And um, mm -hmm. obviously it's a collaborative process, but um, that's a, that's a very inspiring way for an actor to look at it and a very freeing way, I think, to sort of give, give, give an actor permission to bring themselves to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see a lot of things. I remember years ago, uh, this terrific character actor, Tony Roberts, came in to read for me for Four Dogs and a Bone. And he'd been a big deal. He'd been in a lot of Woody Allen movies and uh, featured roles and stuff. Uh, and, you know, maybe at the time that he came in, it, it, he was less popular. Uh, so he came in and he, you know, sat in the chair and the reader read uh, the cues to him and he did the scene. And I said, uh, that's good. Uh, would, you, uh, would you mind, we'll do it again. Would you mind standing up? And he said, no, no, I'd love to stand up. And so we did it again. Uh, and uh, I can see, and he was better, but I could see he was still miserable. Uh, and <laughs> I, I said, you know, you're kind of great. <laughs> Why don't you just like take over the room? Mm. And he took over the room oh. and he was fabulous. And I cast him and oh. he got incredible reviews. Uh, and uh, when I was going to move my show uh, out of the first place it was in to an off-Broadway theater, I couldn't get him because they cast him as one of the leads in a Broadway show out of seeing him in my play. Oh, my uh, God. And, and his career never hit the ground again until he just got, you know, old. Wow. Too old to do it, you know. But uh, it, sometimes you have to notice if an actor is miserable. <laughs> and, and there's two ways of an actor being miserable. Uh, like Phil Hoffman was always miserable. Uh, uh, but his misery was, I'm about to, to work so hard that I'm going to leave all my demons behind. Mm. And so he'd walk in with all his demons on him. And then he would go to this place where he was free. It was his escape from pain. Uh, and then you'll see other people who come in, they're miserable because they hate themselves. They're like, I hate that I'm an actor. I hate my life. I hate that I'm in this room. I hate you because you're sitting on the other side of that table. Uh, and you know, when you see that, you got to like say, look, man, I love you. I love you. I don't hate, I love you, man. Aww. You can go ahead. You're going to be okay. This is a good place for you to be. That's why a lot of the time I would take my chair and move it out from behind the table because I, I didn't want them to feel that obstacle between us. And then, but, you know, you have to notice. I mean, sometimes an actor will come in and you'll go, so where are you from? And I'm from Michigan and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, where'd you go to school? Blah, blah, blah. And you talk for like 10 minutes. 
and say, all right, I'll do it. Somebody else will come in and I'll look at them and I'll go, let's just do it. Because I, I can see they walked in with it. Yeah. And if, I don't want to mess them up. You know? So it's not just the actor, but the director is also auditioning. They're doing the other half. It's a collaboration. And each has to notice where the other one is at the start of the encounter. It's an encounter between two people. You know, that's so nice to hear because I have to say, as an actor, that is the most terrifying part for me is when I've prepared the, the role and come into the room and then I have to suddenly have a conversation. <laughs> and it's it's really interesting. And and I I think every every person and every actor has a very different way in which they handle that. You know, some people are very gregarious and they can do it and they come in and they say, look at me and I've never really been that kind of actor. So that moment of having, you know, I can do it within the character, but then to have to come in and say, oh, hi, you know, my name is Camille. And, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. It, it completely takes me away from what I love, which is that artistic process. So it's so it's so interesting to hear that because what a gift to give to the actors that they can have the, the, this idea of an encounter because we don't think of it like that, really. I don't know. Mm. I've never thought of it like that. Where different people, different people come in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I remember yeah. Uh, uh, I auditioned Laura Linney when she was just starting out. She was just out of school and she walked in and she was just so happy to be there. <laughs> she was like, this is great. This is already great. Uh, and it was like we were throwing a party for her. Oh, I love that. Uh, and read and I cast her immediately. You know, yeah. I was like, she's great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the walk in, I mean, if I if I read Laura now, you know, I remember another time actually, I forgot about this, but uh, Laura came in to read for this film I did, Congo. Uh, and uh, the so she comes in and it's a screen test. And they have me read with her. Uh, and it was like this very confrontational scene. <laughs> so I just like started yelling at her. You know? uh, and she yelled right back. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember I had a terrible hangover. And I'm like, really, I have to do this? I'm just I'm, I'm kind of crippled. All right. You know, like, uh, and she, you know, but she was walking in with where she was at that moment in the in her life. Like Tony, when he went, Tony Roberts walked in miserable. He was miserable because of his life. He was like, uh, <laughs> my career, I'm here, this punk director, I don't even, does he even know what's, just, somebody give me some cyanide. I think this is horrible, you know? And I knew for him it was, but he was thinking it was my career. <laughs> and when you deal with actors who are at a later point, like Laura was at a later point when she went for Congo, uh, you know, she, she's going to walk in with her career. She's not going to walk in like she did the current life is a party. She's going to walk in with, okay, I'm doing this thing. It's like, okay, they got John meeting with me. He's yelling at me. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with that, you know? And it was, uh, it's a factor, you know, and people are coming in and there. I remember Jean Triplehorn mm -hmm. uh, read for me when she was just starting out. Uh, and she told me afterwards, 
all she thought through the whole thing was just give me a chance. Just mm -hmm. give me the role. Trust mm -hmm. me, I'm going to deliver for you. Uh, and I did. I cast her, you know. I was down to her and Marsha Gay Harden. Oh, wow. And uh, it, that, that was one of the toughest choices I ever made because they were so different and both so good in such different ways. Yeah. But I went with Jeannie for that one. Yeah. John, you've been recognized for some of the biggest awards, some of the biggest arts awards. And I know that's not really the the stuff of 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 what you do and who you are and a true artist and all of that, like how you, you know, spend your days and months and weeks. Um, and yet it's such a dream of of so many artists. I was just wondering if you might indulge us and share, you know, one quick story about, you know, kind of how it works. Like you do get a phone call and then you wait oh, for a long yeah. time and the acceptance speech and, you know, kind of well, that. I guess, you know, the the obvious candidate to talk about there is Moonstruck mm. uh, because I was uh, uh, an obscure playwright from New York uh, and I made a splash with Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we only ran for, I don't know, two months or something uh, and closed in the middle of the summer. Uh, and uh, uh, then I, you know, wrote, I decided, well, I'm going to, be back painting people's apartments unless I do something. <laughs> so I thought I'm going to write a screenplay. So I wrote uh, Five Corners and it went into, it got, it got optioned and then finally it went into production. Uh, and I, then while that was going on, I wrote Moonstruck and it ended up that Five Corners wrapped shooting and one week later, Moonstruck started shooting. So, oh, wow. you know, things, Things were taken off in a very quick way, though. And uh, then Moonstruck came out, and it was a big hit. And uh, I was invited to the Academy Awards, got nominated. And I'm sitting in the audience, and it turns out that my category was the second to last category. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there with, like, Lou Gossett and for, like, three hours waiting for my turn. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they uh, announced the winner, I realized in that moment, because at that moment I was asking myself the question, do I think I'm going to win or do I think I'm going to lose? Mm -hmm. And uh, they announced my name and I was shocked. And I, <laughs> I thought I was going to lose. That's when I realized I thought I was going to lose. And so I, I, you know, I got up. And I, you know, went down and I went up on stage and uh, Gregory Peck gave me a bear hug and Audrey Hepburn kissed me and they handed me an Oscar and I turned around and there's like every movie star in the world. <laughs> and I, I had this fantastic blessing. A voice came into my head and said, let this in. Mm. You can put down your sword and shield and let this in. Mm. And I did. And I was flooded with joy because it was one of the only moments in an artist's life when I wasn't going to be under attack. Mm -hmm. And that you spend all of your time 
with all of these defenses that you really need. And then this one weird, crazy moment comes along where you don't need it. Uh, and I've seen so many people win and I'm like, they can't, they can't let it in. They're still like, thank you very much. You know, they're like, <laughs> because they're still in the defense mode. Yeah. They can't realize quickly enough that they're safe for one blissful, eternal moment. And I'll always be grateful that I, that voice came into my head and I got to be defenseless in time to receive the momentary acceptance uh, that very occasionally uh, the movie business affords. Wow. Wow, that's, that's a pretty amazing story and a, and a wonderful reminder in general to, to, take, to take in those moments when you, when you get them yeah. and when you can. Um, we sadly, um, out of respect to our guest and our listeners, we always keep our, our episodes at 30 minutes. So we this are- This good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we always like to end, um, if, you, if you would, with what we call, um, well, typically we're talking to people in Los Angeles, but today, since we're talking to a New Yorker, um, we call it an LAism. but today we're going to call it a New Yorkism, um, which is just a term that we made up that is um, something that you have found to be unique about your great city. About my what? About your great city, New York. Oh, well, New York is just an uh, uh, incredibly delicate thing that can't be broken. Mm, I love that. That's perfect. That's especially perfect for right now. When, yeah. When Broadway's not happening and so many things feel a little bit broken, I, that's, that's, a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing to say right now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, John. Was, I feel so, so uplifted by this. Yeah. Oh, great. So wonderful well, to have you. Good fortune to you both and to all your listeners. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much for listening to Speak LA, the podcast. We want to be able to bring you more episodes like this one, but we can only do that with your support. So please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to Speak LA, the podcast. For more information on Speak LA, go to ispeakla.com. This episode of Speak LA the Podcast was sponsored by Actors Connection. Actors Connection offers free resources, including valuable online programs. For more information, go to actorsconnection.com and sign up for their e-blast today. My name is Camille Thornton-Nelson. And I'm Jen Jostin. Our sound engineer is the very talented Dan Leonard of homevoiceoverstudio.com. You can find us at ispeakla.com. See you next time. Bye-bye.